Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. you guys on Good Friday um, and also to, to engage, you know, through the uh, Palm Sunday uh, thing and through Lent. We've been going through the book of John and just looking at John's take on the events that uh, happened, the events that took place in terms of both both historically and just uh, the incredible uh, teaching, the incredible preparation that Jesus was doing uh, in order to bring his disciples up to speed for what was to happen. And so as the story goes uh, through that time, that time of being together in the upper room, they, uh, they learned about the mission that was ahead of them. And uh, he was preparing them, he was showing them that he was going to go away, and of course they watched him uh, go away. They watched that part happen, they watched him be crucified and, and watched him die, and we talked about that last week, or talked about that on Good Friday. Just the, the pain of that and the grief of that, uh, Jesus going off to be away. And, and they still sort of have his words ringing in their ears. There's some kind of mission that comes after this. But having seen Jesus crucified and, and seen him die, uh, we pick up our story at a moment when they were in a, a very painful place. We pick up that story in a moment when they weren't anticipating resurrection. They weren't anticipating this amazing thing happening. It says after the fact that they looked back at the scriptures and they understood what he had taught them. But as they're going through the experience that we're going to read right now, they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what to anticipate. They were just people who were full of grief uh, and full of trying to figure out the practical things in life. Uh, what do we do how, how the body, with how the body is buried? How do we care for it? What, what do we do moving forward? They're, they're just full of confusion and full of grief and pain. And we're just going to pick up the story and we're going to watch hope come. Um, and, and we're just going to engage with the story a little bit, this text in John. And then I want to take us through uh, to some of the implications of it. Because uh, it, it's really good to know the story and know what's happened. But how does it affect us? How is it relevant? And so we're just going to dig into that together. So John uh, chapter 1, we're just going to read 1 to 18. Now on the first day of the week, and I'll tell little bits of the story as we go. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And just that symbol of that darkness uh, in that moment, uh, the, the pain of that, that sort of early angst. Imagine Mary, like normally they would sleep till the sun rises, but full of grief and full of pain, maybe not sleeping through the night, just wanting to go and, and see and to be there and to, and to care for her Lord. So she ran and went to Simon Peter. Um, uh, or sorry, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Again, no anticipation of the resurrection yet. Just somebody took the body. Where, where did he go? Where is he gone? Uh, so Peter went with the other disciple. 
And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love John just making sure everybody knows that he got there first, right? Making sure everybody knows he beat Peter. Um, We see his personality in that. Um, And as he stooped to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Again, his personality observing, uh, staying back a little bit. Then Simon Peter came, being the brash one, and followed him uh, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And when we do communion next, we're going to talk about what it meant that Jesus folded his own cloths folded his own linens and placed them carefully in the tomb. Imagine that moment as Jesus is rising uh, from the grave. His body is coming awake, and he takes the clothes off of himself and carefully folds them and walks out of the tomb and rolls back the stone. Something powerful for us to see when we do communion next time, so look forward to that. Um, So he he goes, uh, and they see those cloths lying there, and the face cloth... Yes, by his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, reminding us that he's faster again, also went and he saw and believed, for they as yet did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples just went back to their homes. Who took the body? In their minds, no resurrection has happened. Somebody just took the body. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And here, do you remember from Good Friday, Mary, close to the cross, uh, while the disciples were off hiding in the distance, here's Mary still by the body of Jesus, uh, connecting, uh, caring, wondering what's going on, wondering what's happening in this place, what's happening in this empty tomb. Uh, She weeps outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, why didn't the angels show themselves to Peter and John? They're jerks, I think, maybe. I don't know why they did that. Uh, But they, they, they... she asks, she's weeping, and they said, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And so she's still asking the angels, like, where'd he go? Right, where'd he go? Still not understanding. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Imagine that, him just standing behind her. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I think that just speaks to our unbelief. Jesus could be standing right in front of us sometimes, standing right in front of Mary, and her expectation of his death is so strong. She doesn't see uh, that it's really him there. Uh, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him in Aramaic, something about the sound of his voice. She recognizes him, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And he said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that she had said these things, and that he had said these things to her. And so we have this just incredibly detailed account of the life of Mary and of what is happening uh, in her story uh, as she encounters the risen Jesus. Uh, we see her unbelief uh, turn to joy. We see this revelation come. And we see this woman who is an eyewitness to the resurrection and saw, uh, literally saw the body of her crucified Lord physically in front of her, uh, resurrected and alive. And when we get to John chapter 21, 24, um, we see John saying, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And what I want to do just before we get too much more into the story is just to take for a moment the reality that what happened in the resurrection, what happened back in that time was not something that was ethereal and ghostly. Jesus was not a force ghost for those of you that are Star Wars fans. Uh, Jesus was there present in reality and many people saw him. And I want to just, I do this almost every time we're at Easter, but I want us to just grapple for a second with the evidence that this is something that actually happened because we are so many years away from it. Uh, if, if we look at this next slide with uh, all of these names on it, uh, Andronicus, Judas Barsabbas, John, Mark, Junia, Mary, Peter, James, Jesus' brother, uh, Manasseh. How many of you have heard of Manasseh? Right? I'll talk about him in just a second. All of the rest of the apostles they're referred to, James, the other women. There's a list of other women that were probably commonly hanging out around Jesus. And if you said the other women, everybody who was in that fellowship of people knew who that was. Um, Mary, another Mary, Mary Magdalene, the other brothers. Uh, Mary, uh, wife of Clopas, another Mary. Um, Philip, John, Joseph, Barsabbas, sons of Zebedee, Joseph, uh, Philip's daughters, uh, and at one point, 500 brothers. All of these people, at some point, after Jesus had been crucified, had an encounter with the risen Lord. And what's amazing about it is as we look at those names, we just think, oh, those are just, they're just part of the story. But where we see those names show up in the scripture are not only in the gospel narratives here and there, but we see them in the book of Acts, and we see them in the book of uh, writings of Paul, where Paul takes those names and takes those people and says, hey, these are people who have seen the resurrection. These are people who have seen that Jesus is alive. Go talk to them. It's essentially what Paul is doing. He's saying, go talk to them. Go verify the story. And for years and years after uh, the resurrection took place, uh, people would go and talk to them. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 5 to 8, uh, Paul is about to give his amazing teaching on the resurrection. And it says... Uh, He's, he's telling them that Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Right? That's a hint. Most of whom are still, still alive. So figure out who they are and go and talk to them. Um, and many, many people in those many people from that early Jerusalem church went out and traveled the world and went as missionaries uh, to tell their stories, uh, to tell the story of what Jesus did in their lives. Uh, then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so what we have in the New Testament between Acts and Paul, and I just, I just nerded out on counting some of these, we have 62 encounters, 62 places 
between Acts and Paul where Paul references somebody who is present at the resurrection and basically says, this, this is a person you can talk to about this. This is a person who has seen it. And, and, and those are sometimes extended passages. So there are over 200 verses between Acts and, and Paul's writings and a little bit in Peter and John where the people who were present at the resurrection are referenced as eyewitnesses uh, that this thing actually happened. And when you get to somebody like Manasseh, like who's heard of Manasseh? He only appears one place at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 21, 16. And this is when Paul is coming back to Jerusalem. Uh, he comes back and uh, he's, he's about to meet with the high priests and uh, essentially as part of his trial, we know he ultimately gets sent back to Rome. Uh, but as he's coming back, some of the disciples from Caesarea, a little place on the coast in the north, uh, when he arrives there uh, by ship, they sort of say to him, okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem, uh, but let's stop off at the house of Manasseh of Cyprius, an early disciple uh, with whom we should launch. And you could just hear these disciples saying, oh man, Paul has got to meet this guy who was with Jesus in the beginning. That term, early disciple, uh, the Greek word archeo, uh, mathete, uh, is somebody who was a disciple from the beginning. An arch disciple, uh, a beginning disciple. One of the people who followed Jesus about, saw his miracles, maybe not one of the 12, but one of the people who was there from the beginning, a beginning uh, disciple. And so we see that even Paul gets to come and sort of delight in meeting this person. Uh, Paul, who'd already been to Jerusalem once and already had the opportunity to connect with people and hear some of the stories, Paul interviewed them, he talked to them, uh, he talked to Luke, who interviewed many people. And we just have, when you add it all up, this incredible like mathematical uh, phenomena of thousands and thousands of people having interactions with uh, people who saw the risen Christ. And we know that in the early days, the church grew exponentially on the news. It grew exponentially on the reality that people saw someone die and then saw him alive. Not, not something made up, not a fairy tale story like it seems like to us from so many years, living people that you could talk to and go and talk to who saw the person die and then talk to him when he was alive. A reality, and, and when we look at that, we look at those thousands of people who had interactions with these eyewitnesses, we don't have any historical record whatsoever of anybody who said anything about not believing them or doubting the story, or doubting the tale. We don't have anybody uh, who is writing and saying, this is a bogus story. We certainly know that they experienced persecution. We know that uh, people who hadn't talked to the eyewitnesses, and we know that many of these disciples uh, suffered and were crucified for their beliefs. But anybody who is connected to the story at all, not only went out and passionately told the story, they went out and passionately told the story in spite of that persecution. They had every reason to uh, be quiet about it, every reason to recant the story if it was not true. If the story wasn't true, like, why die for it? If the story wasn't true, why face persecution for it? Why not just be quiet about it and don't bother with it? But these people um, 
believed and saw and heard and knew without a shadow of a doubt and were willing to die for the fact that it was true. No one could tell them to tell the lie that it wasn't true. They just wanted to say what had happened. And so if the resurrection really happened, what does that matter for us? It did happen. Uh, scientifically, in terms of the story, in terms of the history, uh, someone looking at it with historical rigor has to, uh, with integrity, say that there is enough evidence here that something actually happened. So what do we take from it? Uh, the first thing I think you should take as, as believers is you should be confident. You should be confident when you talk to your friends about Christianity and they're full of doubt or they're atheists or they're, they're struggling or they've been hurt by the church, we, we can always point them back. Why don't you just do the research a little bit? Why don't you just look at the stories? Why don't you just Google? Like Google will lead you to the truth of the resurrection. If you investigate uh, with any uh, attention to detail and any desire to look at primary sources and wrestle down the truth, you'll find at the heart of it is that there was a man who was dead who was then alive. So we as Christians, we don't want to be arrogant, we don't want to be bombastic, but you can be very confident that the story that you believe is something that really happened. So we want to build our, our confidence and then from that, how does that affect how we live? How does that affect uh, how you walk in the world? How does that affect uh, how you interact? How does that affect what you feel? How does that affect how you go forward? The reality that Jesus himself was resurrected, that true thing that happened in space and time. Well, Jesus gave us a hint in John uh, 11. Uh, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And this is after the uh, resurrection of Lazarus, also seen by many people. He's hinting that this is something that is about to happen to him. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death is an option. Death is an option for us. At no space in history and in time was death ever an option. But for us, for humans, since Jesus has been resurrected, death is not something that has to happen to you. Uh, we see this in, uh, in John. Um, I mean, John 3.16, we've all heard that a million times. Whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. If you believe in him, eternal life is ahead of you. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, and, then, and that's just the standard salvation message. How many of you have heard, heard that before? How many of you have seen it on a placard at a football game? Right? It's a, the standard salvation message. Um, it, it's something that is hopeful. It is something that is helpful. It is something that... Uh, gives us uh, courage, but when we, we don't think about it very much, like it's just like, what, what does that mean? What does not dying really mean for me? Is, is that, like you talked, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're like, I'm really scared of dying. I'm really scared. I really, 
What do you think about that? Is that, is that the conversation you typically have at Tim Hortons with a friend? It's not, it's not people's biggest concern, right? It's not something that is, is weighing on people's hearts. But we live our lives like we're pretty scared of dying, don't we? If we think about what we actually live, how hard we work to protect ourselves, we know that we have an overarching fear of death. Uh, think how many of you play first-person shooters or have played first-person shooters? The last time I was really into like a first-person shooter, like a video game, uh, was GoldenEye. That was a long, long time ago, right? But those of you who are young, you're playing Apex, you're playing Call of Duty, Halo, Destiny 2. I think of for a second about how you play those games, right? You know what happens when you're going to die, right? What happens when you die? You just respawn, right? You, you go to the spawn point and you come back to life, right? Now, what if you paid $90 for your video game and then paid however much more money for your DLCs? Got 120 bucks, 150 bucks into this video game. But you knew that the rules of the game were such that when your character dies in the video game, the game shuts down and it's over and your screen goes black. Would your strategy in the game be somewhat different than it is the way you play it now? Right? The reality is, is that we are living our lives like the video game turns off when you die. The truth of the gospel means that you get a spawn point. <laughs> you get to come back. And you get to come back with power-ups. And you get to continue the game. You get to continue the journey. So what if we lived our lives like we play video games? What if we lived our lives with that kind of courage that we fight in Battlefront? that we fight with playing Apex, that we fight, fight with playing something else? What if you lived your life with that kind of courage? That's what the gospel means. That's what uh, this thing that death is optional means. That's what, you know, if you believe in me, you will never die means, is that we live our lives with extraordinary courage. So that's, that's good. That's, that's a part of the story. That's a part of the implication of the gospel, the implication of the resurrection. But the reality is, is that even then, uh, that concept of death for most people isn't something, again, that we're talking about around the water coolers or at Tim Hortons or Starbucks or Equator or wherever we're going out for our friends with a cup of coffee, right? A survey of American fears, this was conducted by Chapman University in 2017, uh, determined that 20.1% of Americans are afraid or very afraid of dying. 20.1, that means one, that means like 87% aren't. It's interesting enough in itself. Um, but 20.3%, so another 0.2% of Americans are actually most afraid of public speaking. Jerry Seinfeld commented on this in, in, in Seinfeld uh, years ago. He said, what that really means is that uh, the, the average person, if you go to a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> right? We're not really 
afraid of dying. And if you talk to this generation, uh, this was something that came up in an evangelism session at the Change Conference this, this week. Um, you know, if you talk to young people, like our generation, the Billy Graham, uh, get your soul saved from death, saved from hell, that message was really relevant to uh, those who were boomers, uh, those who were Gen X, it was more important to us. But people who are uh, Gen Z and people who are millennials, that's not as much on their minds, not as much what they're thinking about. When you talk to somebody from Gen Z or a millennial, they're much more concerned, not with the chaos of death that is, that is coming outside of them, but with the chaos that is present to them now. And if we're honest, we don't really think about death that much. We don't worry about the consequences of it that much. We, we don't think that, it, that it's a really big deal. But we actually fear the sting of death. And that's what Paul is addressing in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, um, 54, 55. He's talking about the resurrection again. Uh, he's saying, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then death has been swallowed up in victory. Then the saying that is written has come true. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We, 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 nobody, nobody really wants to die. We're not anxious in going out of our way for it. But we actually probably, if we're more honest, what we really actually fear is uh, the victory of death over us. What do you lose when you die? Uh, that word for victory, uh, nikos, speaks of the subjugation of an enemy. When we die, what we fear actually is subjugation. We fear our loss of autonomy. Uh, we fear our loss of the ability uh, to uh, control our own significance. Uh, we fear, one of the things that people fear about death is they fear what's going to happen to their loved ones. How can I affect the lives of the people that I love? Um, we fear a loss of control. Like, am I going to go floating out there somewhere and, and what's, what's going to happen? We fear uh, that unknown. That's what it is to fear um, death and its victory. That's what it is to fear that we are subjugated by death. Our ability to maneuver in the world is broken down. And of course, we fear the sting of death. That word for sting is the Greek word kentron, which means a goad, like that. You've heard about that, that term if you listen to Bible preaching for, for any length of time. At the bottom of an ox cart, there were these sharp, pointy sticks where if the oxen would stomp, um, the cart would sort of shove up against their backs. Uh, the pointy sticks would hit the backs of their legs and get them going again. The sharp point of that stick, the sharp point of that pain, that's actually the other thing that we, if we're honest, fear about death. We actually fear the pain. We fear the goad. What that means for us, I think if we think about our own fear of death, if we're honest about it, we fear the loneliness of it, separation from the people that we, we love. Uh, we fear that grief that comes. Uh, we fear the nothingness of non-existence. And, and, and many fear just the pain of suffering, Right? the pain of, of suffering that, that is on the journey to death. And so if we're honest, if you're talking with your friends and, and, and they're like acting cavalier about their lives, that death isn't something 
that they're wrestling with, something that is a, is a struggle for them, it's probably not. They're probably, we're, we as a culture are so well medicated that we're not actually thinking about it. We're uh, filling our minds, filling our hearts with, with media. We're not actually as a people these days thinking deep thoughts about these things. But if you can bring your friend to a place of conversation where they're really willing to engage with what's in their hearts, you'll find that they fear those things. They fear the loneliness. They fear the pain of separation. What will happen to their loved ones? What would it be to be, have no more identity, uh, to go into nothingness, to be just gone? Those things are the things uh, that we fear. And what Paul is teaching here in this text is that uh, not only is death defeated, not only does it not happen, but along with that, the victory of death does not happen. The sting of death does not happen. If we want to help our friends uh, walk into the kingdom, walk into uh, a revelation, and to accept the goodness of what Jesus has done for them, uh, helping them realize that they're rescued, from the victory of death over them and the sting of death over them is, is important. Death, the resurrection doesn't just address that vague uncertainty of death. Uh, mortality, when mortality is clothed with immortality, it's not clothed with some drab gray Jedi cloak. Is this too many Star Wars references in one message? <laughs> it's not some drab, gray, formless cloak, right? Uh, Jesus' disciples aren't given robes of drab gray, but robes of blazing white that reflect the splendor of the one who clothes them. Right? The, the clothes that Jesus has for us uh, are meant to be uh, an expression of life, an expression of, um, of his power, an expression of uh, all of the amazing things that, that are meant to happen for us in life. What happens uh, in the new kingdom? You still have sentience. You're not going into nothingness. You still have a mission. You are a co-heir with Christ. You reign with him. There is a new heaven and a new earth coming down, and we will in some way be stewards of that new heaven and new earth. We are given a new vocation, a new way to serve, a new way to love, a new way to care for the creation that he is redeemed. There is no more fear. There is no more pain. No more of the goad. Every tear is wiped away. Uh, you will have awareness. You will have worship in community, fellowship with every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There will not be loneliness. There will not be fear. There will be community of, of epic quality. The resurrection of Jesus The resurrection of Jesus defeats the victory that we thought death had and defeats the sting. And in the end, we have the victory. And in the end, we don't have the sting. We have joy, eternal and life forevermore. So this implication is so important for us as we share the gospel with our friends and as we think about how we're receiving what Jesus has done for us. Uh, there is no sting. But more than that, 
more than just not having pain, more than just us having joy, more than just us avoiding death, more than just that future hope that we have. Uh, the resurrection is meant to be something that affects our reality here and now. Uh, when Paul is teaching again, uh, jumping back uh, to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 17, now if Christ is proclaimed as a raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? If Christ has been raised, obviously you're going to be raised, and we'll make that connection. Why does Paul make that connection? And he does this, he goes on, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And this is a bit of an odd connection for us, right? How many of you just kind of, without having thought very deeply about the resurrection, without thinking very deeply about the connection between the cross and the empty tomb, we just sort of think, okay, Jesus did that one thing. Uh, he died on the cross for our sins. He saved us. He paid the penalty and dealt with sin. And then three days later, after he was buried, he rose up from the grave. As though, as though those are two separate things that he did. One thing, he died, and then it's like, psych, I'm alive! Right? Boo! Right? Like, he, he just defeated it. That's just, just two separate things, right? In our minds so much of the time. But, but those two things, the cross and the empty grave, are intimately uh, connected. Uh, to understand that, we have to understand where death comes from. Where, where does death come from? Why is there death in the world? Sin. Right? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. There is no such thing as death by natural causes. The only cause of death is sin. It's always the only thing that has caused death. We go all the way back to this story of the garden, right? When did death come in to the garden? When mankind sinned, when we rebelled, when we chose our own way and we became under the curse, right? So what happened when Jesus went to the cross? He dealt with sin. He, he killed sin. He, he ended it. He paid for it. He sacrificed himself. What is the logical result if the cause of death is extracted from the world and extracted from your life? Resurrection. Right? Resurrection. What he's done is he's taken the poison that caused our death and dealt with it. The resurrection is the logical conclusion of his payment on the cross. One thing flows from the other, and the second thing doesn't happen unless the first thing happened. And so we see, you know, all kinds of people uh, in, in sort of liberal theology that are sort of arguing, uh, we don't want to talk about the sacrificial atonement of Jesus, we just want to talk about his powerful uh, resurrection, let's not deal with that ugly thing, let's deal with this beautiful thing. Well, there is no beautiful thing without the ugly thing. There's no beautiful resurrection uh, without... Um, the fruit 
uh, without it being the fruit of the cross. And so that reality for us, knowing again, remembering that we're talking about a historical thing, we look back through space and time and we see that Jesus was raised from the dead, we see the testimony of the eyewitnesses, we see how far the apostles went in terms of holding on to this truth of their story in spite of persecution and pain, we realize that it's something that actually happened. So the implication for us is because we saw that happen, we know that Jesus dealt with sin. We know that Jesus dealt with what was causing our death in the first place. He didn't just deal with the symptom, he dealt with the cause. And so uh, uh, N.T. Wright says it like this, sin is the root cause of death. If death has been defeated, it must mean that sin has been dealt with. But if the Messiah has not been raised, we are still in a world where sin reigns supreme and undefeated, so that the foundational belief that God has dealt with our sin in Christ is based on thin air and is reduced to whistling in the dark. Without the resurrection, our hope for the overcoming of sin is nothing. And so we know that we've overcome sin. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, Paul unpacks it a little bit in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We identify with his death so that we can identify with his resurrection, so that because he has dealt with sin, we have our sin dealt with, and we can move forward in life. And going on a little bit later to verse 12, he says this, So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So we have sin defeated, uh, we have him dealt with it, and we have us still in the middle of a battle against it. And so if we look at this next slide, um, I, just, I just thought the visual would help us understand it. Pre-resurrection, before Jesus was, was resurrected, we were in a set of conditions where it meant that we simply can't not sin. Right? We didn't have that power not to sin. We were under the curse of sin. We were under the curse of the law. The resurrection came and set up a set of conditions where sin has been defeated and we can win. We can defeat. In, in partnership with Jesus, uh, we can uh, defeat sin. And then, of course, the final resurrection comes at the end of time when Jesus returns again. And we have a set of conditions under which we can't lose. But let's just think for a moment. like What a radical shift that is for us to going from a place where we can't not sin to a place where we can win. That's, that's a radical shift for humanity. That's a radical shift for you and I. And we actually, I think a lot of the time, we don't actually believe that. We actually believe so often that we are bound in our sin, that we are just absolutely stuck in it. But this picture that we have of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it, it's like you're going into the boxing ring uh, before Jesus has come. You're going into the boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back and your shorts around your ankles and an opponent three times your size. You, you can't win under those conditions. 
what the resurrection has done is pulled your pants up, uh, broken your chains, and your enemy is the one who is tied up, and he's half your size. He's a defeated foe. It's a radical difference in how we live our lives relative to sin. We go back to that text in, in Romans, and, uh, and we see, yeah, I cannot let sin reign in my mortal body. I can uh, defeat this thing. We're still in the fight of our lives, um, but compared to what the culture is telling us, we, we have amazing freedom. We have amazing freedom. We were speaking about Gen X and Gen Z a little bit earlier. Uh, those groups of people who are, uh, would, would not be as much concerned about the chaos of a future death, but more concerned about uh, the chaos here and now. Part of that pain of the here and now comes from a naturalistic worldview where we just believe and we're taught um, that your addictive personality is something that, that you were just born with and you can't change it. Your predisposition to alcoholism can't be overcome. You're just wired that way. Uh, your life was mapped out for you. The feelings that you have are the feelings that you feel. You have to just be who you feel. Uh, you struggle, uh, you face an unchangeable reality. Your genetics, your, your makeup, uh, the, the wounding that's happened to you, your victimization, all of those things that happen to you uh, become your identity. They become who you are. And you are locked in the reality of those things as who you are and who you will be for your whole life. And so we have in our, in our culture now uh, assisted suicide for people who just don't like the who they are and can't handle it anymore. But the resurrection of Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. That's not the reality. You are not bound to sin anymore. Sin has been defeated. Death has been beaten. It has been conquered. It takes discipleship, it takes time, it takes community, it takes commitment, it takes learning your Bible, it takes investing in prayer, it takes ministry, it takes care. But as we go forward, we have every probability and every possibility that the power of the resurrected God will work in us and change us from who we are and make us someone new. The kingdom of God has broken into our here and now and resurrection is happening here in this place, in this reality. It is not just a future distant thing. Hey, come on. He's alive in us. And you have hope. Every fear, every depression that weighs you and holds you is not who you are. Every addiction is not your identity. Every sinful desire is not your reality. He is making us new. We are not bound by sin. We can win. Healing and miracles happen. And that's what we see uh, in Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, and we feel that, we feel the reality of the struggle of living in the world between worlds, the world before he has come again and, and defeated and, and extracted all wickedness from the world, we live in this moment. 
It says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Not just your future bodies, not just your resurrected bodies, but here and now life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Do we, do we get the reality of that? Our enemy is defeated. He's in the ring with us bound in chains. He can twist and shake and move and maybe knock us down a little bit, but he's defeated. And we are unchained and the spirit of God lives in us. How much weight are you and I carrying from just simply not believing what God can do, what he can do in us. And again, this is not without struggle. This is not without the need for community or the need for prayer ministry or the need for discipleship, the need to know your Bible, the need for discipline. But we can win. And it's so good, right? It's so good. It's so good. And we should just be encouraged. You should be encouraged. The stuff you think you're stuck in, we're not eternally stuck in. There's so much hope. There's so much life. And then the last implication, which we're not even going to actually talk about this week. We're just going we're, we're to do that one in the future. But uh, the resurrection propels our mission. What we have received, this ability to not fear death, uh, this incredible ability to not fear the sting of death, this incredible ability to experience the resurrection in the present also propels us to know that this is not just for us, this is for the world. And we have a mission, we have a vocation. But I wanna leave us with this question and this is just echoed back from the Old Testament, echoed from Deuteronomy, this choice that God has always given his people and this choice that I think is given to us in the day-to-day -day as we wrestle against sin, as we wrestle against the fear of death, as we wrestle against the fear of pain. In Deuteronomy, it says this, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and yours might live. Will we choose life? Will we choose life? Will we choose to walk in the benefits and responsibilities of life? Will we live like we get eternal life and there's a spawn point for us? Death is not forever, death is an option. Will we live like death doesn't sting? We live like we don't fear the emotional consequences of death. Will we live in that courage? And will we live as people being saved, continually being transformed by the reality of the Holy Spirit in us and in our community? Will we choose that life? Will we believe the story? Will we believe the resurrection? Will we believe it? And the worship team, you guys can come. We're going to sing this song. Um, Christ is risen from the dead. 
trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the dead. And I think that is the call for us. Will you come awake? Will we come awake? Will we rise up from the dead? Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the dead. Let's stand. Lord, I pray that we would rise up. I pray that we would rise up, that, that this reality of this thing that happened, that you lived and walked the earth and taught and prayed and ate, and that you died a sacrificial death uh, to conquer our sin, to pay for our sin, and that you rose and that people met you and talked to you and you sat on a beach and you ate fish with them and you taught them still after that moment in the grave. Would the reality that that actually happened, would it radically transform our lives? Would it radically change us? Would we live like we don't fear death? Would we live like we play video games, God? Give us courage on the battlefield. Would we live like we don't fear eternal pain? Would we invite our friends into that hope? And would we live like you can change us now, like you can rewrite our stories, like you can rewrite our DNA, like you can heal our bodies? Would you let the kingdom break in in its power? Would you wake us up to the resurrection and the truth of it and everything that it means? Wake us up to Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.